It's been said of many historical figures, but it was definitely true in the case of Shakespeare. There were, in fact, two Shakespeare's. The first Shakespeare is the one that most of us know through his texts, the poet and playwright. The lyrical, inventive, masterful adapter. This is the Shakespeare people usually think of, if they think of Shakespeare at all, as a writer. But the man was also a shrewd business person. Concerned with the financial legacy of his family, with owning land in the late feudalistic Elizabethan England, and above all, with earning a good living. Many of the documents about Shakespeare's life that we still have are not about his poetry, but about his business dealings. His purchases of homes, his shares in companies, his final will. Shakespeare was nothing if not an early modern proto-capitalist, concerned with receiving the fruits of his labors and the profits owed to him by his investments. This duality of Shakespeare is also present in our contemporary dealings with the man. Sure, there are the plays taught or inflicted upon tens of millions of students every year, but feeding off of the cultural objects themselves is an entire set of industries, artistic, academic, and touristic. Unlike any other writer in the world, simply invoking the name Shakespeare lends such a particular cultural weight to whatever is being sold that it almost ensures there's a market for it somewhere. Lindsay and I are obviously part and parcel of that world, mostly as consumers. We go to the festivals, we bought the Shakespeare bobblehead, we've even done the pilgrimage to Stratford-upon-Avon and to the Globe Theatre. And while we don't make any money off our podcast, we do compete for another hard-earned currency, the time of our listeners. So what is it about Shakespeare and his works, his life, and his legend that makes it so easy to sell? More importantly, why is it people are still buying? Today we'll walk through the world of the Shakespeare economy, its history, its metamorphosis in the post-war world, and how it operates today. We'll throw some dollars and cents your way as we try to make sense of how the world sells Shakespeare on this episode of The Bix Pod. Since brevity is the soul of wit, more of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. And beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Aiden. I'm Lindsay. And this is The Big Spot. And today, as Aiden so masterfully uh, elucidated in his opening essay, we are discussing um, selling Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. which sounds a little bit like prostitution sex work. (laughs) We're not talking about that. No, not this time. Well, maybe in a way, because I I do wonder how Shakespeare would feel about the way he's been commercialized in in the modern era. But um, but yeah, generally, I'm really excited for this episode. Can I tell you a story? By all means. So back in 2008, I believe was when we first discussed changing from Twin Peaks to the Shakespeare yes, yeah, incarnation yes. of our podcast mm-hmm. that it currently exists, in which it currently exists. Yeah. Um, Aiden and I got got this idea to do Shakespeare, and uh, we went to a pub and we sat on the patio after a performance um, at our local Shakespeare festival, mm-hmm. and we drew up a list of all the different topics. Of course, we knew we were going to be discussing the plays, but we were discussing all the different topics that we wanted to kind of match up with the plays as we went through. And Aiden brought up this topic, which originally was called, I think, Shakespeare and Economics or something yeah. like that. And uh, and I wrote it down on my little list on my phone. I was like, yeah, sure, whatever, Shakespeare and Economics, <laughs> we'll deal with that. It's future Lindsay's problem. Well, I am future Lindsay right now. And in the, the weeks leading up to recording this episode, I was like, God, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> Shakespeare and Economics, what the hell was Aiden? Mm. Aiden doesn't drink. For those of you who don't know, Aiden is not a, he's a teetotaler. He yeah. does not drink. 
But I'm still thinking, like, what was in his Coca-Cola that <laughs> night? Because what, what in the world was he thinking of? And, it and wasn't we, this, by the way. It wasn't this at all. But we started talking about it back and forth. And and the topics that we ended up coming up with to discuss on today's episode are probably one of the most exciting that I have personally experienced in the time that we've been doing this podcast for yeah. the last year and a half or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm like I'm like vibrating. You're I've been jazzed. wanting to record this episode for like a week. Yeah. Like I finished doing my research a week ago and I was like, Aiden, can we record? And he hadn't even read anything yet. <laughs> I mean, this is just this is how we roll, I guess, is, yeah. is the one of the us point will get excited story. and then the other one will hold them up and take them back down a peg and then, no, then eventually we wind build up in a nice each other media. up to <laughs> the same level yes, of excitement. Are you not excited to talk about I am about? excited. This is a, this is an interesting concept and I think um Initially, Lindsay, to defend my thinking, I was thinking yeah. about how Shakespeare talked about the economy. Yes, I think in his that's, plays. Yes, that was that was my initial thinking. And there is there is stuff you can talk about, but it's I don't think it's a full episode. Whereas no. this topic is very rich. There's there's a lot going on here when you yeah. talk about selling a dead man who's who was a poet 400 <laughs> right. years ago. Like right. that that's kind of where we're at now. Um, and it's it's just yeah, it's a it's a different approach. So. Um, but I think a very fruitful one. Yeah, I and, think. And, yeah. and there's a lot to talk about in terms of sociology and, and the economy and things that we are not not experts in. So no. this will be a fun, just, that should be just the general disclaimer. Well, it is. I, think we, I mean, I think we started off this podcast by saying we're not experts on anything we're going to talk about. <laughs> and here you're going to see a lot of proof. Um, Love it. But we, we, we do have a, a grounding and a knowledge in this in certain aspects of this. Sure. And I, I think one of the big ones that we're gonna we're gonna start by like just going very high level um, kind of the themes that we're gonna talk yeah. about in this episode. As we always do. Yes. Um, and one of the big ones is um, about the connection between selling culture and the production of culture. Um, at, a, at a very high level. So Shakespeare it's was... capitalism and culture. Yeah, well, yes. exactly, yes. Uh, and it's, you know, An Shakespeare... of those. Exactly. Yeah. Shakespeare himself was um, both. He did both. He was the, he he was a, a shareholder in uh, the, the, theater company. the theater company that yep. put them together. Um, and he was also the poet who was, who was creating the words that they would then Really speak. the first time in history that that could happen. Exactly. Right? So this is kind of ground... Ba- brown, blah, 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 brown breaking? <laughs> Groundbreaking ground, stuff. Yes, we will call it groundbreaking, though, as much as possible. Um, so it's 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 just an interesting dynamic that that Shakespeare really kind of uh, inhabited both worlds, um, and that those worlds again, as I kind of alluded to in the essay, kind of continue down the line. And, it, and sorry to interrupt, but I, no. I just think it's interesting. Like in your notes here, you've mentioned Marvel, which we've ripped on a couple of. Well, I have anyway, yeah. because it does seem like the more capitalistic you are, the less artistic you can be. It seems like the, these two concepts are really in conflict a lot of the time because in order to make money you have to do there there's this idea that making money means you're selling out Mm -hmm. right and and your art maybe art shouldn't make money maybe that's the the underlying thing or that you know the idea of the starving artist so it's it's an interesting mix when you when you look at Shakespeare as like this not unique. I think there are other people who are similarly. Jane Austen has a kind of this, yeah, this little cachet. industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are other people, other artists throughout the world who have this kind of um, gravitas, but they also bring in a lot of money for their estates or yeah. for the tourist industry that's built up around them. Yeah. Um, it is really interesting that there are that it's not the norm, right? Yeah, with very few exceptions. There's people like I. I I'm thinking of Christopher Nolan because Tenet was just released. Um, yeah. recently like he's somebody who I think has a lot of artistic 
or would would like to think that he has a lot of artistic integrity, yeah. but also brings in a lot of money. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing, well, but and, it's and, not... And we talked about this with Twin yeah. Peaks a lot. Yes. It was like, you know, you had like the populist kind of tendency and TV sensibilities of, of Mark Frost, and then you had the pure artistic eraserhead baby mm-hmm. uh, terrifyingness of David Lynch, and they, they combine into this popular yet artistically valid yeah. and, and meaningful and talked about uh, creation of yeah. Twin Peaks. Right. And... So I think I think there is there is definitely a, a sense of which um, pure artistry kind of sits on one end of the and this yeah. is like in the popular understanding yeah. like there's pure artistry on one end there's rapid commercial success on the other and I think what a lot of people look for is uh, where those two overlap like a, like a Christopher a happy Nolan medium yeah almost. yeah you know or like. Um, I can't remember his name now, but the guy who directed Parasite, it's a very, you know, it was a very popular movie, Mm -hmm. um, but it has a message and it has a very uh, artistic approach to how everything's filmed and everything. And fun fact, I I don't know if this is true. I think I saw it on TikTok. Um, (laughs) This is where we're getting our news, people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They're they're talking about doing like a Parasite-themed theme park, which I think is just (laughs) like... Well, maybe exactly. a whole other conversation well, I mean, like, but, and, but and the yes. fact that Parasite was so obviously about uh, yes. capitalism and yeah. the way it dehumanizes people and stuff yeah. but uh, so it's just it's really interesting <laughs> that way but I, I think that is kind of the general conception that you have um, popular and you have artistic right. and I think you know it was Jonathan Franzen and David Foster Wallace and all these other guys in the 90s and late 80s and 90s who were talking about like the perfect uh the perfect novel, in their case, yeah. was one that was both popular and artistic. Right. And they both kind of strove for that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and obviously, uh, that's kind of been a, a, a kind of calling card for um, the people who would look to do to kind of merge the both. Yeah. And I think Shakespeare, um, his plays were popular. Yeah. Uh, they were like the Marvel movies of his time. Absolutely. Right? I mean, we just talked about how he did sequels upon sequels. Yes. He wrote Mary Wives of Windsor for Falstaff, yeah. although it didn't turn out that way when we yes. actually read the play. But that that was the conception, right? And uh, that, But, I mean, he's also now considered the yes. canonical poet of all time. I mean, so, ever since the Victorian age, mm-hmm. I know certainly in Canada and in the United States, in the UK to a certain degree, I mean, Shakespeare is held up as the paragon, the, the head of the canon of what's taught in a literature classroom. I mean... Everybody who goes to university, when we went to university, you had to take a, a survey level, 100 level English course, and Shakespeare was taught. Yeah. Even when you get well, to university. in high school. Yeah, in high yeah. school, high it is school too, but like, yeah. I mean, a university level Except for the English class. The engineers yeah, did not well, take that. No, that's true. We but, made a lot of fun of the engineers yes, at we the did. time, but it's um, coming, but, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, there, there's that, I think that's the goal, mm-hmm. and it's something that, um, that Shakespeare seems to have fit quite nicely in mm-hmm. um but in the popular imagination at least for modern day creators it really does seem like that's there's a big disconnect between doing what is going to make you the most money because you're not the one backing yourself really yeah. well in, yeah. in in a lot of cases, cases it's a big yeah. studio and the studio system has been conglomerated and and merged in, in such a way that the only thing they're going to back is the thing that's going to make the most money, but that might not be the vision that you have as an artistic creator. And so you get directors for hire and you get, you know, people who are willing to just make what is going to make money. So yeah, the whole, the whole, discuss- this could be a whole podcast yeah, on this yeah, one question. Yeah. Um, but, but I think leading from that is like who benefits from the creation of art and, and from the consumption of art. And mm-hmm. I don't know if there's, a solid answer for that because I think we all benefit from from the creation of art whether or not we 
um, actively are aware of it or are actively engaging with it. I see this in museums and people criticizing, you know, various artworks or yeah. uh, criticizing an, uh, a quote unquote art house film. But I think that in itself, the act of criticizing it is a benefit of art. Yeah. So I mean, it's made even you think if about something. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, um, so I think we all benefit from it. The consumption of art is another question because that well, that means we're when you consume something in a capitalistic society, there's an exchange of money yeah, happening, and yeah. so the the owner of that production process is yes. the one who's benefiting from it. And, it, it. and in a lot of cases, it's I think. And I think we we kind of generally assume that there's that there's um, that the creators deserve most of the benefit from that. Sure. I mean, like you think about how Taylor Swift went off on Spotify because yeah. they you know they don't pay their, the artists a whole they lot don't. of the of That's the true. proportion of the funds that they receive. Um, you know, people are like, yeah, she should make a lot. Of money. She's made them a lot of money yes. by being on the platform and and drawing listeners in and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so I think. Again, that's that's that is one aspect of it. But when you think about like, and Spotify is one thing. I mean, they've built an infrastructure and they deserve to reap some benefits and all that. And sure, sure. Um, but the I mean, you go to the modern day Shakespeare equivalent again, Marvel. You know, they've Disney has invests hundreds of millions of dollars in these movies. Yeah. So you you can't really just expect an artist to just have complete reign when it's a hundreds of millions of dollars no. that's not theirs right yeah and so it is it is this kind of a little bit of a balancing act i think is it's fair to say that um we accept some of that but we still expect artists to kind of reap the majority of the benefit because it is their creativity that that comes across in the medium but you don't and, and that's an interesting point because when you said that i thought of ryan johnson in the star wars franchise yeah. who did try to exert a little bit more of artistic control and was and was criticized heavily for it and lost the ability to continue yeah. in the franchise. Which well, but I don't even think his film was really his full expression of what no, he was going not for. The full he, expression, he, but he was leading to a yeah. complete revamp of the Star Wars universe, yeah. and then they kind of wound it all back. And that 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 also deals with other issues regarding fan culture and the um, well, the relationship between creator and and the audience. Yeah, but but, but within the film itself, like. Again, the film's kind of leading towards getting rid of the whole light side, dark side sure, sure, sure. dichotomy. Yeah. It, that's That seems to be what the whole movie's going to be about. Right. And then at the end, they just fall back to the light side. dark Because Disney's like, no, light side and dark side is what well, makes and this, Star and, Wars and work. And this is my point, was that the Ryan Johnson was the creator of that idea, and he didn't get the benefit of that. Well, but he, he it was never fully implemented. It wasn't sure. his vision so that came is, across. And that, like, that's that, the thing. that's still... Because who does... <laughs> whose vision does come across fully yeah, it because was there Disney's, is so ultimately. much yeah. even when it's not Disney yeah. there's so much producer input and there's executive producers yeah. and there's so many people who have their fingers in the pie that that really it's well I mean David Lynch has complained about it yeah, many exactly. times right? the yeah. act of creating something in that system is really not there is no, it's, yeah. There's no one artist yeah. that kind of holds. So, true. so the the maybe Marvel isn't the equivalent. I guess in terms of popular entertainment, it is. Yeah. But but when you think about a writer mm-hmm. working more or less solitary work on a book or yeah. on a story, yeah. and they'll have an editor maybe, and they'll have you know well, input from the publisher. Might, yeah. But it's not like the studio system. Yeah, there's not as many true. people. There's not as well, much money being involved. And that's involved, why a lot of people right? like will defend like fan fiction or something like that because yes. it is pure artistic. I mean, except for Fifty Shades, there's never been a huge fanfic Correct. author who's made a ton of money off it or anything. They do it for the enjoyment. So, I mean, yeah. that and that's the other uh, nitpick in all of this is okay. like 
there's the monetary value of paying a ticket to go see a Marvel, yeah. Marvel movie. But then there's the uh, enjoyment you get yes. out of any creative expression. Yeah. I mean, I keep thinking back to uh, we used to host uh Fringe performers yes. at our local Fringe Festival. Uh, we would host them in our home while they traveled from all over the world to come here and perform. And uh, uh, we've had a couple street performers come and stay with us. And they have a, a kind of a different approach to they you know the, the the value of their performance. They they you know they give on the performance for free, and then they ask for donations at the end. And yeah. it's kind of like up to the individual to to donate however much they want. Yeah. So this whole idea of like. That, in that one, I love that. I love that whole idea Absolutely. because it's just like, how much did you think? You've already seen it. You've seen the whole performance in its entirety. How much joy did it bring you? Yeah. Assign a monetary value to it and give it to us as opposed to, you know, you could walk into a Marvel movie and you might have read a couple reviews or something, but you walk in and you're like, I didn't like it. But it I've already worse. paid 15 bucks yeah. and I can't get that money back exactly. and you feel cheated. Exactly. And, and so there's a disconnect between uh, the enjoyment that you've got out of the work versus what you paid. Um, and then there's all those ones that you enjoy for free. There's the, uh, you know, there are thousands fan of fiction. fan fictions, the Wattpads, the YouTube. Yeah, the yeah. free YouTube creators who, I mean, they, they make, make ad money, money through yes, ads. But, but um, it's not the same as me giving them money. Yeah. I'm giving them the 30 second mid roll ad yes. that I have to well, watch. Well, you're giving which is most of that to YouTube. I mean, that's. Yeah, the, and that's, yeah. So, I mean, this is a really complicated question. <laughs> but, yes. but there are obviously there are people who benefit on both sides benefit from the creation of art, benefit from the consumption of art. Yeah. Sometimes it's the same person. Yeah. In the case of Shakespeare, I think the benefit of, of creating and consuming the art went to him and his his theater Band company. Of Man, yes. Yeah, which is great. And I think mm-hmm. that's in an ideal world, that's how we would engage with art. Yeah. In in a way. And that's why I also really like the the street performer um, ethos. Yeah. Ethos. We had many conversations. Shout out to Brent and Maya. Yeah. Um, because they're uh, we've had many conversations about this exact thing and, and how that really does I mean, it, it impacted us in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. We're still talking about it years later. Exactly. So um, that would be like an ideal system. Obviously, that doesn't exist under um, a capitalist regime, but it, yeah. it, it... Well, you can't you can't make $500 million Marvel movie and then ask people to no, donate. Like, no, exactly. You can't expect the someone to gamble that much money So maybe that. it's so. like the airline pricing system that the thing, the system itself is broken and we need to maybe rethink it. <laughs> we'll link to that video. Lindsay yes, found a very interesting will. video yes. about how the airlines have messed up pricing during uh-huh. the pandemic. But um, so, I mean, there, there is that whole discussion of yeah. like who benefits from it, who, what is the relation between uh, the artist and the people who are bankrolling them, especially yeah. in a big production. Um, but then there's also like, well, there's, there's different uh, ways of approaching uh, what's produced at the end, and sure. there's kind of two minds of of how uh, it's a how false to look dichotomy, maybe. I think so. I think so. But it is generally understood that there's high culture yes. and there's low or popular culture, yeah. um, and that's that's kind of been around since like the the 50s. Uh, basically, it's kind of a it's mostly. A I would post-war. say even earlier than that because you you still had in like yeah. Victorian era you had you know the vaudeville theaters were probably not considered a high you would go to see a a verity opera if you were high culture and then you'd go to the vaudeville to see popular culture yeah and and novels were originally very low culture that's going back to like the 1700s exactly and then they were gradually elevated so i mean and that that's another interesting thing to talk about with shakespeare Mm -hmm. is the fact that he did start off as you know it was for the plebs i mean everybody attended the performances maybe or they put on the same performances for the queen but it was initially, you know, it was ribald humor and, and yeah. all sorts of uh, dick jokes. For the groundlings. That was his audience. And that's where he made his money. Yeah. So 
and now it's literally like considered the pinnacle of high, of high culture. culture. And it's and we've the talked great about irony this. of Shakespeare. Yes, <laughs> we've talked about it many times. But it is it is an interesting point um, that these things shift. But I think uh, another really important, and this will come out later, is the fact that not only that it shifts, but that there are. Um, the, again, the false dichotomy is partly because um, how do you categorize high versus right. popular and what counts as popular? Um, can you have an unsuccessful pop artist? Like I think of I think of uh, K-pop and J-pop. They have like huge industries built up to like manufacture right. these pop stars. Um, but obviously not all of them make it and yeah. none of them, very few of them make it to like, you know, the, the big, big time where they're even famous in North America right. and what have right. you, right? So are, are they... Can, can you be a failed pop star? Like, is there is there a way in which, like, you can aim for the masses? Like, I always think of, like, genre writers who write, like, they'll write dozens of mysteries, yeah. but they'll never sell ten, hundreds of thousands of copies. They might right. sell 5,000, 6,000, enough to keep, like, the publisher, like, okay, yeah, we broke even on this. We'll keep yeah. feeding them, you know, letting them publish for right. their niche audience. But then there's, uh, then you have your Agatha Christie mystery novelists, or you have, um, you know, for every one that becomes Game of Thrones, yeah. there's dozens and dozens of fantasy series that never get any real attention, maybe sell just a, not not as much, but they're, they're, they're both operating in that popular culture world. Right. So, you know, is at what point does it actually become popular culture versus just something that was designed for the masses like there's well that's that's uh, yeah when you were talking about pop music and and i mean you mentioned k-pop j-pop i think of like backstreet boys and nsync and like, yeah, the yeah. boy bands the manufactured boy bands yeah. of the 90s yeah. the 80s and 90s that um there really was a team of people who would like pick and choose the right elements it was like science right they were yeah. like well we need a little bit of this and a little bit of that and then we're going to manufacture something that will be popular yeah and and there were bands that didn't make it that maybe had one hit and then disappeared. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, that certainly does exist. I, I'm not sure if that is what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah? That, that's okay. kind of where I was heading. Yeah. Because it's like, they, so so they're unsuccessful, but they're popular. Is that is that well, the weird <laughs> split? Kind of. It's it's that they were designed to be popular, but, but they failed. might never be popular. Yeah, yeah. like it, it's well, and that and that's part of the problem too. I think is that is that there is a cabal of people who are like, you know, we're going to manufacture what people want mm -hmm. rather than it's like leading the masses versus following the masses, yeah. right? Like like the the most successful the the reason that. Um, Fifty Shades of Grey was so popular was because it already had a huge, a following. huge following before yeah. it was made into a, book. a, a book like series a that book. was yeah. yeah. So somebody somebody very wisely saw that and was like, "We're going to capitalize on this." And it was mm -hmm. an, it was a, a, a publisher that dealt with publishing fan fiction, yeah. and they just latched onto this and saw how popular it was. There's there's other examples in the One Direction fandom with Wattpad. Mm -hmm. And I think a movie was made oh, about really? it, but it, but it's awesome. certainly not to the degree that yeah, Fifty Shades, Shades was. was quite. But but when you when you let the people tell you where they want to yeah. go, you'll have more success than if you just whip it up. But, and I think but that's exactly. And, yeah. and the, the counterpoint to that is is kind of the high artistic culture, yes. which might be like you think of like I, we come back to David Lynch. I think for for good reason, you know. He created a racer head and it was not commercially successful no. at all. 
but people watched it and other creators watched it and they're like, wow, this guy yeah. is incredible. He and is then they went on to create more popular things. Yes. Like like we, we talked about it all the time, how Twin Peaks influenced um, you know, the Sopranos, the yes. dream sequences and all these Lost. films. Lost all these all yeah. these things harken back to David Lynch doing his artistic thing yeah. without much concern for the public, uh, the popularity of what he was creating. Yeah. So you, you kind of have this this end where uh, the pure artistic side again is the high culture, perhaps, mm-hmm. or the the one that's less accessible, um, kind of paves the way. Yeah. Um, and then popular culture follows it as other people learn to adapt the the techniques and the ideas and the and the characters right. or whatever it is into something that's that's more popular and and uh, yeah, accessible for people. Mm-hmm. I think you know I think Marvel kind of did that in in the sense of like. Um, it found what had kind of worked in like the Spider-Man movies and, yeah. and they're like, there'd been superhero comic book movies, but then they found they're like, okay, we need a huge star. We need him to be quick witty and like, and the, the plot has to hit the three act structure perfectly, which is what Disney does. You know, it just, it just literally combined all the elements that had already been milling around yeah. for a long time. And it got, um, it finally had the CGI and all these other the all these elements came together to create something, but uh, something that was really really popular. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't any one individual aspect of right. that that would have worked at any other time without any other director. You know, John yeah. Favreau was actually quite instrumental in creating what we now think of the Marvel movies um, as cliche and rote and and all these things. But in two thousand eight, when you first watched Iron Man, you're like, wow, that was just a knock and sock him good time that was just it took all the best parts of all these other little uh, facets and, and turned them into something and Shakespeare did a similar thing I think it was you know he was connected to the artistic world he'd done his poetry stuff and then as he's writing these plays he's he's kind of both leading um, and amalgamating what's going on elsewhere and and turning the high culture into the popular culture I would say yeah maybe that's a good a good comparison maybe that's why Shakespeare fits with us so well we started off with David Lynch and we ended up with Shakespeare but because the other the other side of that obviously is like the people who just for pure artistic value I'm thinking of someone like Banksy right where okay Banksy's interesting yeah because like I don't know how Banksy makes money he makes tons of money he does but like his artwork he just like does just art on the wall yeah. and leaves it and yeah. then like nobody paid him to do that no. but he makes money and yeah. so that's something that um and and the, the mystery surrounding that is probably part of it too why he's mm-hmm. he he is considered a, a wildly popular artist even though nobody knows who he is well very few people i'm yeah. sure um and and there are other people who are like that who you know um make the art they want to make and don't make money but still they just don't care Mm -hmm. they'll still put out art that that is controversial or you know you think of van gogh for example who did one painting i think in his lifetime that was it and and he is now one of the most famous post-impressionist artists in the world and or impressionist artists in the world and so it's like um that still exists i i think we artificially put obviously this this market value on art that doesn't necessarily need to be there and but but there is no other way to talk about it in our culture yeah unless you you want to be snooty and that comes to our next point which is like the idea of cultural capital being Mm. like its own currency its own currency exactly right where like people who 
who create or consume the quote-unquote right kind of culture mm-hmm. are the ones who have the most cultural capital. So there's yeah. there's another market almost that's being yeah. put around the creation of art. Yeah. And so you need to be like we take the the um the opinions and the criticism of someone who consumes a lot of highbrow films and yeah. we put that above the guy who writes on Rotten Tomatoes for whatever reason. Even though well, the movie, yeah. the filmmakers are gearing it towards the guy writing on Rotten Tomatoes. Maybe not he, he owns a small blog or, yeah. or maybe it's just the fan response is what they want. Yeah. These people are not quote unquote connoisseurs no. because they're not Roger Ebert or whoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but we still assign a different value to their to opinions, their yeah. opinions yeah. because – they consume art differently or they consume the wrong kind of art in yeah. or the right kind of art, wrong kind of art in different proportions to one another. Yeah. And it is a very kind of like, it's a very kind of classist kind oh, of debate yeah, in a huge. lot of cases. I mean, like even like us, like talking about Shakespeare and, and yeah. when we tell people we're our podcast about Shakespeare, like, Oh, you know, you you're get, one of those people. Yeah. You get, you yeah. get a kind of a look and it's like, yeah, well, yeah. Shakespeare is in this day and age, a high culture classist kind of bullshit because Frankly enough, there there are gaps. Like it's not something you can just pick up and read as sure. especially if English isn't your first language and stuff. Yeah. There are barriers to uh enjoying Shakespeare and I don't think anybody can can hide around that. that. Yeah. yeah. But um but at the same time, uh it, it's it's very much uh something that's just been posited in other people's heads. It's not something that necessarily exists. Like anybody can pick up Shakespeare. Yeah. But uh, th- there is a certain uh, expectation that you have to be kind of of the right person or of a certain class well, or a even, certain background to really get Shakespeare. Yeah, and, and anytime you're not of that, like if you're a person of color who discusses yeah. Shakespeare, people expect that you're going to be discussing people of color in Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like you're a niche yeah theorist or you're a niche researcher which you might be and that's that's totally fine like you might that might be your primary point but you might also just enjoy shakespeare right (laughs) and and you don't want to discuss it from the angle of post-colonial like maybe that's not what you're into but there's an assumption being made that that that's the only access point that you have in and and you're right it is very classist it's sexist it's there's there's a whole bunch of prejudices that are built up around that and and i mean obviously we're just talking about shakespeare here but it happens in a lot of other areas yeah. where, um, yeah, there's just there's just a divide between. I think it's the divide between the people who consume that culture and the people who, um, I want to say, appreciate. That's not the right word, but like yeah. the ones, the commentators or, or whoever. Yeah, right? it is, especially in our day and age. There's there's like a whole. And I think this is breaking down actually in our day and age is, is mm. that um, anybody can comment on yeah. any aspect of culture that they want. They can, you know, join on, jump on Twitter, follow the right hashtags, follow yeah. some people and tag them and have a conversation about yeah. Shakespeare. They yeah. can, they can talk about anything they want about. Two idiots yeah. in Canada can start a podcast yeah. about Shakespeare. Here we are. We like, can create the content that we want to, yeah. to you know, like we we did this because we were filling a, a void that we there just aren't that many podcasts or channels that talk about Shakespeare. We're like, well, let's do that. Yeah. You know, we're not making any money off of this. We've never tried to monetize this, but I don't think we would make money off this because no. it is still a very niche area. Yeah. But but the point is, is that 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 kind of democratization of of the conversation of the conversation yeah, about yeah, culture is is, is, is definitely moved. Yeah, and and I think that is just going to with the way that culture is going it's just going to get 
easier for people to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's that's going to go back to having arbiters of taste. Yeah, who decide well, what we what we should see. There, there might be, and I mean, and that's and that is one of the most interesting things of of all of this is like what what remains in the canon. You know, what what remains yeah. popular throughout the day. I mean, we're talking about Shakespeare to this day. Partly because, well, we like Shakespeare. Yeah. The fact that we were exposed to Shakespeare and that we enjoy it and that we've continued to pay money for performances yeah. and what have you is is all part of the the process and the the, the larger discussion. Um, and it's it's really interesting to track that what has stayed in yeah. the canon. What's remained popular through time? Shakespeare has. Mm-hmm. Um, Other people haven't. Well, exactly. And and part of that though is is that people do push Shakespeare to his scent. There is yeah. there is a there is a an entrenched industry that will continue to push like oh no the BBC should do some more Shakespeare plays. Yes. And, and you know. And that falls under that high slash low culture dichotomy that exactly. we in a lot of cases yeah. right. Um, but. Again, also going back to the point that Shakespeare was originally for the yeah. low popular culture, um, you know, it's it's always interesting to think of like what popular things um, have persisted mm-hmm. um, even within our lifetime. Even like I think of like Avatar was right. like the biggest movie of all time. I mean, yeah. it was the first one to crack a billion dollars, I think. And we're like, oh well, Avatar is obviously going to be. And now nobody cares or talks about. Or yeah. There is no, there's no Avatar industry. D- James Cameron hasn't even. Mo- managed to make the second movie yet. Yeah, right. Um, and I don't think he'll do very well if it does come back because Avatar did not age well. Um, and and that's kind of the thing. What ages well? What what continues to pull people back? You watch Star Wars again now, you're still just... Yeah. You're, you're fired up and you're like, yeah. it's Star Wars. It's 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 got something there. Yeah. Um, some of the things from before that time have not uh, lasted sure. as well. Some have, right? Yeah. And it's it's just a matter of what, do, what continues to bring people back what has something? What has that je ne sais quoi? And and you say what is that je ne sais quoi? <laughs> I, I I'm I am curious because what we're not going to answer this question fully, Maybe. but we'll try, we'll try because what does Shakespeare have that makes it? Yeah, and and you know there there might be room for a conversation about cancel culture in here too. That that nebulous concept that I think is kind of bullshit because. Yeah. I don't think cancel culture exists in the way that people no. are trying Talk, to make Talking it. about cancel culture means you've kind of already missed the point about yeah. what, what's, what's being canceled. But, but you do <laughs> you do have to think about, you know, popular artists who have been quote-unquote canceled and, and the reasons why. That's another thing yeah. to, to talk yeah. about when, when um, popular imagination shifts away from certain ways of dealing with things. Yeah. And now we don't, we don't venerate... Uh, Woody Allen to the degree that yeah. we used to. Yeah. And so that's something that that is also part of it. Not that I'm saying anybody is going to try and cancel Shakespeare, but it has come up oh, that, well, he's, that there's, I mean, yeah. you know, it's sexist or it's racist. And, and it and is all those it things. It is all <laughs> of those absolutely. things. Um, but, but for whatever reason, he's been able to resist... Well, I think the, I think some of that is yeah. just the natural conservatism of, of English culture and yeah. English society, right? Yeah. That's that's propped him up all these years. But I think also there's 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 redeeming qualities in the thing. I mean, you you can find feminist undertones in Shakespeare. You can find uh, you know small hints of of not being super racist with like yeah. Othello and stuff like that. Like the, there are there is redeeming. A, yeah, there's some redeeming qualities yeah. within that, and I think plus then you have just the 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 pathos that he expresses so well yeah, yeah, yeah. has such value that you're kind of like okay well and i can and accept or not i can maybe not accept but i can recognize the racism and yeah. the sexism and all those things that made up because there's a bit of a there's 
there's two things I think are happening is that there's a recognition that this whatever we're talking about maybe isn't the right way to do it and there's there's that redemption that mm-hmm. comes through the discussion of that um, but there's also a reliance on like deeper stories that that are common to the human experience I don't think what Woody Allen does in his films you know where it's like the neuroses of the middle-aged man yeah. who just can't admit that he is middle-aged yeah <laughs> um like, I think that is not a universal story. So, like, yeah. it's easier to kind of push him to the side yeah. and say, this is not a necessary part of our culture. It's just something that's appealing to a very small group of people yeah. who, and, and not that they're not important, but it's just, there are better, there are better stories. There are more meaningful stories. Star Wars is another one, which is very, it comes down to very deep um, mythological type tropes that, yeah every story going back to Gilgamesh yeah. are talking about yeah. right good and bad light and dark like these are these are essential stories and so the more you have that and Shakespeare does that a lot there's a lot of essential themes that are being brought up jealousy um, and like all these all these yeah. basic human emotions yeah. that he really explores well exactly right? so yeah. so yeah I mean that might be something to to think about when you talk about the transformation of low culture to high culture mm-hmm. are marvel movies necessarily going to be are they going to stand the test of time yeah. the way that star wars did don't like know. the original star wars right? i don't know I, I i don't see the same kind of essential themes yeah but that maybe you know we we have new essential themes like commercialism <laughs> that have come up which is why we're talking about what we're talking about yeah. today so yeah. i mean I'm not a prognosticator. I'm not Nostradamus. I'm not going to try and predict what's going to happen. But, but yeah, but it, it and it all comes back to for us in this episode, especially is like, um, why are people continuing to buy Shakespeare? Yeah, and that, that's exactly. and that's all part of it, right? Is yeah. like the fact that he's gone through previous analyses and cancel culture, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, attempts to. Um, you know, downplay him and, and whatever, right? Like yeah. there's, there's just, there continues to be an interest in Shakespeare. At yeah. the end of the day, he was high, he was low culture. Now he's high. Uh, and the people are still paying. He's high enough or he's low enough that there's enough of a market there yeah. that, uh, it continues to sustain itself. And, and, uh, but high enough that you can way. have a hundred dollar tickets to go see yeah. or that people will camp out for hours to go catch a free play in Central Park. Yeah. Because that it's, there is a cultural cachet that's mm-hmm. built up around it. You're like, Undeniable. I saw Shakespeare exactly. on the weekend. You're like, oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Or like, we saw Jude Law as Henry V. Yeah. Ooh. Like, that 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 in itself is, is really interesting because that's another mix of like high and low <laughs> culture because like, you know, movie star playing yeah. Henry V on, mm. in the West End. Like, yeah. yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Villain. I have done thy mother. I don't know if we're getting away from the point that we're trying to make here. Well, We've no, kind no. of talked around a lot of things, but do you want to bring us back, Aiden? Yeah. So I think the 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 main point we want to get to is starting to talk about that Shakespeare industry and, yeah. and what what is being sold, what's what's uh, who's doing the buy-in, you know, these kind of questions. And uh, Lindsay did some really great research on uh, the tourism approach of Shakespeare, which I think is really interesting to get into. So we want to dive into that right away. Um, and it, it it all kind of starts with. Uh, shortly, not shortly after his death. It was about a hundred years after his death when well, the first. No, let's let's bring it back right to sixteen sixteen okay. okay, because sure. because Shakespeare obviously dies sixteen sixteen, and it's it's within a year that there's a monument that's put up in in the church where he yes. um, is buried, and I think that's the first time that somebody is is trying to memorialize or um, 
uh, canonize Shakespeare mm. as an important figure. And there's lots to talk about with regard to that monument, which we'll get to when we, we talk about the authorship question. Yes. But it's undeniable that this was meant to link the body that was buried under the, the floor in, in Holy Trinity Anglican and the man being memorialized on the wall. And that's kind of the first the first time that that happens. The next you know, 1623, when the first folio was published and we had an image of the man next to his words. I mean, this is this is where you start to see the mythologizing of Shakespeare in a, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the right word. Yeah. That, that this is somebody who, the words are not enough. They are enough, but but we're going to attach the man to the words in a way that that is commercialized in yes. a way. Yes, Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you get that that kind of um, that kind of mix there um, very early on within the first mm-hmm. ten years after his death. Um, this coincides with the rise of what's called cultural tourism. Um, it's the kind of thing that the the grand tour. For those of you who don't know, in the high renaissance through to the victorians maybe even into the early 1900s um young men who would you know finish their primary education would go off for a few years and do a grand tour of europe and they would they would all hit the same spots it was like going to a travel agent and you pay for the grand tour and then you would go to rome and you'd go to venice and you'd go to florence and you'd see all of the high artistic cultural places that led to your education being what it was and led to your society and culture being what it was um so this is something that's very closely mixed with or, or intermingling with shakespeare tourism because there is almost like a grand shakespeare tour that aiden and i have done like it's not like it's set in stone but everybody who wants to walk in shakespeare's footsteps goes to stratford upon avon and they go through the homes that are owned by the shakespeare birthplace trust and they go to the globe theater in london even though it's not the original globe theater um and you experience these things that are related to the culture that you're venerating yes. that you're holding up yes um so about a hundred years after she 150 years after shakespeare dies um there were already people who were making this pilgrimage to Stratford-upon-Avon. And the guy who owned Shakespeare's house was getting fed up with the people trying to take pieces from the mulberry tree that Shakespeare planted in the backyard in the back garden. Yeah. So he chopped it down. And uh, and the tree that's growing there today is ostensibly a grandchild a or something, something yeah, of that original yeah. tree. Yeah. But what he did with the pieces of that mulberry tree is he uh, created all these bits of... Um, uh, souvenirs. Yeah. They're souvenirs. Yeah. So you'd find like, you know, uh, bookends and, and carvings and whatnot that were yeah. made from the mulberry tree. And you can, they still come up for auction every once in a while. Yeah. And, you know, there's no proof, I'm sure, that yeah. any of this yeah, actually exactly. came from that mulberry <laughs> tree. It would be very hard to prove that. But, yeah. but that's kind of the beginning of this Shakespeare tourism industry, which David Garrick really, about yes, 10 years after that, of, yeah. grabbed, oh, yeah, very much. Yeah. He was a, a Shakespearean actor who tried to start, I think it was called the Shakespeare Jubilee. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a huge failure. Yeah. Like it, it, well, it rained and it was all time. Yeah, so, and, yeah, and just, I mean, yeah. people really thought they're like, well, we're going to come and we're going to celebrate this great author. And then at the end of the weekend, somebody said like, well, now we're stuck in this provincial town and there's no way to get out. You know, it's like, and that, that to me is like, it, it ruined Garrick's relationship with Stratford-upon-Avon. Like he never went back there, I think, yeah. after that. Yeah. This was in about 16, 1769 was when yeah. it was. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was 
already at that point, people were thinking about how we're going to commercialize um, the the industry around yeah, Shakespeare. Yeah, how, right? how am I going to make money by saying, let's talk about Shakespeare? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it takes about another 80 years for the houses to come into public ownership, I guess. Yes. Um, they were still private homes up until the 1840s. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, uh, the the what became the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust stepped up and raised a bunch of money. I think Prince Albert was one of the people yeah, who donators, donated yeah. to this. Charles Dickens was a member yeah. of the London chapter of this society. Yeah. Um, because even up until this point, like the private homes, there was a pub, I think, the, the Swan and Maidenhead was what it was called. Um, and people would visit there knowing that it was Shakespeare's home, but they would only be able to access the public yeah, the areas public park, of this yeah. private home and they were still wanting to sign the guest book so you see like a guest book there is a special guest book for celebrity visitors yeah. and like washington irving yeah. signed it and charles dickens signed it yeah. and keats signed it like yeah. there were people already making these pilgrimages it's like it's not it's kind of a no-brainer that somebody would want to step up and buy the homes that yeah. are associated with shakespeare and so they did, and the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust was born. Um, there, there is an interesting thing I've, you put in the notes that there was a rumor in in uh, 1846 yes. that P.T. Barnum, the uh, circus magnate yeah. of the time, was going to buy the home, chop it up, and ship it over to New York and right. rebuild it there. Because it wasn't. I don't know when this actually happened, but this is not an uncommon thing. There was a bridge, uh, the original London Bridge, wasn't it? Something like that. Or something yeah, I think that I've was taken that, apart yeah. brick by brick and moved to Arizona or something yeah. like that. Like. Like so, this was not an uncommon thing yeah. to do. So I could just imagine P.T. Barnum, like brick by brick, taking apart yeah. the Henley Street home and then shipping it to some theme park yeah. in Illinois or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Right. So yeah, like that. And I guess that's another thing. You know, the British aristocracy, the, the high culture yes. people were like, well, we can't allow we can't, that. We can't allow an American. So Prince person. Albert and Charles Dickens get together and form a crime fighting duo that. No, that's that's a Marvel movie fiction? waiting to happen. Let's okay. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they paid about 3000 3, pounds yeah. for it in 1846, 47 yep. timeline. Um, yeah, and then there was also a replica house built the same year uh, in the Royal Surrey Zoological Gardens. Yes. Um, so this is a, kind of like a, a borrowed uh, yeah. tourism. You know, it's it's kind of like, oh, well, you can't make it all the way to Stratford-upon-Avon. Well, and I think the house was, was in need of a lot of renovations as well. Uh, so it's yes, not probably, like it yes. was open to the public. I think it took about another oh, okay, okay. What, Sorry, 15 yeah. years or something for yeah. the house to actually be open to the public. So yeah. in the meantime, you could they built this, this replica one, yeah. and, and uh, it was like a perfect replica of the house, yeah. right? Um, very much in this in the style of what they have now where they have people in costume yes. And, yes. and stuff. So it's yeah. kind of like a theme park a historical theme park yeah you know like you go to any any theme park or historical garden or whatever today we'll get back to disneyland later don't we will um 1856 the national gallery opens with the chandos portrait being the first in their collection um the birthplace was restored in 1860 uh you have arts festivals like the one that garrick 150 years earlier was trying to build up by the early 19th century these are starting festivals like this are starting to come up you have um the salzburg uh salzburg festival yeah just just the salzburg Salzburg festival Festival, yeah which is the sound of music um where the sound of music gets its Mm storyline um Stuff like that where where you're starting to see cultural tourism of the kind that the Grand Tour was part of. Yes. Um, being marketed to, and, yeah. and very much popularized yeah. for like the average person. And when you get into the um, the 1900s, you get uh, air t- air travel, air, uh, yes. uh, global yeah. tourism. Flight. 
<laughs> Thank you. Yes, flight, as he puts so eloquently. So it makes it easier for people to to do this traveling. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's just we'll we'll get a little bit into that in a minute. But um, 1935, the Ashland, Oregon, the Shakespeare Festival, mm-hmm. which is now the Oregon Shakespeare Festival premiered um san diego had a shakespeare festival the stratford festival i think was 1953 yeah, yeah yeah the stratford shakespeare festival in ontario um the edinburgh festival 1947 mm-hmm. these are all like post-war or around the war you get um a resurgence of popularity and yeah. i think um you're trying to rebuild the the culture that has been lost from the wars and yeah. shakespeare plays a very important role well, in that exactly and i mean i think it's it, i mean it's obviously <laughs> England won the war, so they get to choose what what kind of cultural byproducts sure. um, emerge. But but it is it is the growth of of travel and the middle class. I mean, like yes, exactly. You know, there's all these American GIs returning, and they're they're getting their education afterwards, and they're having you know six point eight kids or whatever the birth rate was. I don't know, it was crazy high. Um, but you know, like they're having big families, yeah. and they they have middle class jobs. There's still high tax rates, so the middle class still exists. But um, you know, there's there's this whole boom in. Uh, Things that are accessible now. Well, yeah, and, and it's like it's like leisure time starts to be yeah. a thing. Like you know, the the socialist policies of of successive governments allow for paid vacation leave. Yep. So so these families are like, well, yeah, let's if we can't fly to Edinburgh to see Richard II on stage at the Edinburgh Festival, well, we can drive to Oregon and we can go yep. see um, a play. And yep. and it's it becomes something that, again, coming back to that whole cultural cachet, you know. If you're nouveau riche in a in a or nouveau middle class, let's say you're going to try and borrow from the high class, and Shakespeare was very much considered high class at that point. So yeah, that's going to bring a lot of tourist dollars from people who want to be seen as culturally important, I guess, mm-hmm. or who, who want to participate in high culture. Exactly. Um, this is also around the time that uh, you get interest it like sam wanamaker i think it was 1947 when he went to england expecting to find the the globe Globe. theater still there and didn't and so it was like well i'm gonna build it and then did and (laughs) i he died before it was officially opened in 1996 but um it's it's now kind of become the the linchpin of yeah of this this industry yeah Absolutely. absolutely yep um and yeah, you get the Royal Shakespeare Company founded in 1961. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 1970s, you get the the policies of the Thatcher government, which really emphasized a lot of um, yes. the the culture, the high culture, the yes. British culture, yes. uh, very nationalistic policies. Yes. So that contributes obviously to an education system that privileges Shakespeare, I guess, above other. Yeah, the national curriculum came in around yeah. that time, and it and it prominently featured Shakespeare Um, and we'll we'll get back to the educational aspect but it's also it's also a kind of manufacturing heritage I think Robert Hewison was the one who coined that phrase or that's where I found it Um, which is kind of what you see in America and Canada right which You know, well, yeah. like Disneyland, and and that's that's a heritage that's a been heritage completely moment. manufactured. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> for our Canadian hippo, yes. listeners, um, and 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 that leads to today, where you have probably a billion people every year, one sixth, one seventh, pre-COVID, obviously. pre-COVID, yes, yeah, um, yes. Um, of the world's population travels for tourism for yeah. leisure every year, and the Shakespeare industry drives a lot of that tourism to England. Yeah. Um, four million tourists visit the Stratford 
upon Avon area annually. Mm-hmm. Um, their tourist dollars are what sustains the birthplace trust. Yeah, they, they do they, not receive they get public funds. Very little public funds. I looked at the accounting. I think they made twenty million pounds last year, and they they brought in fifteen thousand. Yeah, from grants from yeah. the government. I think that. Was yeah, it. and so I mean, it's like yeah, they, like they'll still get certain grants because they are a, a, a cultural yeah. and heritage institution. But um, but yeah, they are self sustaining. Like they're Absolutely. they're they're a business. Yeah. At yeah. the end of the day, they have investments. That I, I look through all their annual reports. Yeah. It's quite something. Yeah, so, it's, yeah. it's amazing. And they own five buildings associated mm-hmm. with the with the Shakespeare Family people. And, so, yes. like the the birthplace in Henley Street, new place, his mother uh, Mary Arden's farm, um, and Hathaway's cottage. We didn't mm. go when we were there. Yeah, um, and Hallscroft. So these buildings are are all you pay admission. I think right now, um, as of recording this podcast, only Henley Street is open. Mm because of covid, COVID regulations yeah. but yeah. but you are able to visit any of these homes pay a, a fee to get into all of them or yeah. a certain number of them yeah. and experience life now obviously it's not it's been reconstructed yes, to a certain degree course, and it's yeah. not the furniture but they'll try and say that it's the furniture but it's all it's all part of building that aura yeah. right which which is what drives people there it's what drove us there yeah um, down the road is Holy Trinity Anglican Church where you can go visit his gravesite. We did. Um, which we didn't, you didn't pay for that, but it's a church, so it's yeah. a different yeah. kind of thing. Um, the Birthplace Trust also has paintings in their possession that are of various authenticated provenance, yes. you know, compared to others that yeah. exist. Um, and they operate, their, their website has school resources and yeah and they make um, a lot of their money from uh going out and visiting kids and teaching yeah. kids about shakespeare yep yeah so it's it's kind of a nice little uh dovetail they have with the education system yeah and they also have a gift shop as yes. does the national gallery yes. as does shakespeare's globe um the <laughs> playhouses these are all of these things they they are as aiden said they self-sustain um and it's it's stuff like that we're going to talk a little bit about souvenirs um in a bit yeah but that's something that is very much tied up with the the Shakespeare tourism industry. Yes. Is very much tied up with the, this exchange of, of money for goods and services. Absolutely. It is it is hugely influential. And I think I think the the really interesting part is what's happened in, in the kind of post war world where it's really grown. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it it, it it doesn't rely on government grants. It, it's not. It's something that's in the public interest in a sense of uh, being in Britain and the the UK government's best interest to promote Shakespeare as yeah. much as possible. Yeah. Um, but it is self sustaining enough uh, because you can draw four million people a year, which is just like yeah. you know when Shakespeare was alive, how many people were in England? Like six million or something. <laughs> Like yeah. it was not there are not yeah. a lot of people and now that many people a year come to visit him right like that that yeah, is that exactly. is a crazy thought yeah um so uh yeah. and from all over the world which is interesting because there are places all over the world that have nothing to do with shakespeare that have become cultural landmarks in their own right yeah. like the stratford festival yes in ontario yeah. which has no connection whatsoever to shakespeare aside from the town the being called stratford. stratford yeah and and yet it's one of the preeminent shakespeare festivals in the world yeah the folger shakespeare library um which is has nothing again nothing to do shakespeare never went to america but you can go this is now an institution that you can visit yeah. as part of a kind of Shakespeare pilgrimage, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's on my list of places yeah. to visit, which is weird. Yeah. You know? And 
So I want I want to like keeping all that in mind. I, yeah. I do want to because I want to jump on that your point about it being a, a global thing. Yeah. Um, something that's really helped, and it's what we talked about uh, two episodes ago yep. with Shakespeare on film, was Shakespeare popularization uh, through the new modern mediums yep. uh, of film, especially. Um, and so this this is kind of played a big role in keeping Shakespeare at the forefront. It's yep. why you and I yep. like Shakespeare, because in the 90s, we exactly. were exposed to a bunch of Shakespeare and we enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and that's part of why we're here today. Uh, and it's part of why we went to Shakespeare. So the, these things kind of feed off and, and, and endorse one another. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting that the films themselves are also... Uh, you know, they're purely capitalist in their sense. I mean, I think there were some Soviet productions of, of King Lear. There was a director, I can't remember his name now, uh, but he did a bunch of, of yeah. stuff during the Soviet era. So maybe not so capitalist there, but, um, you know, uh, for the most part, you know, the Bollywood ones that we've talked about in the past, uh, there's uh, Japanese, I mean, Kurosawa loved uh, Shakespeare. Are, are you just waiting to talk about Shakespeare in Love? Is this your segue well, to talk the, about Shakespeare Well, I, I, I am going your to mention Your favorite film ever? It's not my favorite film ever, but it's, <laughs> it's one of my favorite Shakespeare movies. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's what's interesting. I did want to talk about um, how those ones also act as their own mini industry. You know, like the right. Shakespeare film industry, like you think of Kenneth Branagh, yeah. that's his bread and butter. I mean, he yeah. made other movies and stuff and they were also successful. But, but you don't think about Kenneth Branagh's other films. No. You think about you think his Shakespeare him films. and Shakespeare. You yes. think about him as the blonde Hamlet. Like yeah. these are these are the things that you're, that you're, that come to mind, right? And uh, so the films uh, and TV productions, even the BBC ones, you know, they, they, they operated within this capitalistic environment and they, they also kind of, um, as we talked about in the film episode, mm-hmm. they had they kind of struggled at times to bring uh, to make Shakespeare accessible for the masses, yep. to make him popular again, um, while also retaining the high mighty dignity of Shakespeare as this cultural icon up yep. here. Um, and so it's it's really interesting to think about um, that as its own offshoot of uh, the tourism industry because they 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 do feed off each other and they sure. push each other. I mean, how many people? Um, I am going to talk about Shakespeare in Love. Please because, do. Uh, Shakespeare in Love was, to my surprise, and Lindsay's, the most successful Shakespeare movie of all time. Yeah. Uh, it made about $300 million, yeah. uh, at the box office. The next most popular uh, one was Romeo and Juliet uh, by... Baz Luhrmann. Lur- Berman, as I like to call him. <laughs> I like to combine his names. Uh, so these two uh, are the most popular ones, but... Uh, Shakespeare in Love doubled the receipts from yeah. from uh, Romeo and Juliet, yeah. um, and it, it, we'll we'll talk a little bit about why that is. But I mean that that play is very self referential and aware of uh, Shakespeare as this cultural icon. Yeah, it, the whole point is that he, the reason I think it sold is that people love to think about Shakespeare. They may not like his plays very much, yes. um, but Shakespeare the person is very accessible well, and, and, and interesting. And here Aiden asked this question last night. We were out driving, and he's like, "Is Shakespeare? Do you consider Shakespeare in Love to be a bio?" pick yeah and i was like absolutely not yeah. because it's not at all there's nothing <laughs> factual aside from the from the it's set in london i guess in the 1590s but but it's not a biopic but it's what we want to think his life could have been like yeah it's it's very well received shakespeare fan fiction is I, what it is I, it is it really is it's 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 shakespeare fan fiction in the sense that it's like what if um, Shakespeare's stories happen to Shakespeare. Yeah. You know, there's Twelfth Night and Romeo and Juliet are kind of weaved into this yes. whole thing. Um, and so there's it's, no historical evidence for that whatsoever. Oh, of but it, not. but they play with it in a way that makes it seem like it could be. Yeah. So we're allowed to imagine that in yeah. a way that is very satisfying. Yeah, and and it it it, it is itself a Shakespeare story, yeah. but it's it doesn't have quite as much of the hard language. You know, they they do a little light Elizabethan yeah. language, but you know, so it's 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 an accessible 
populist version of Shakespeare. Yeah. And one of the first shots in the movie, I didn't remember this, but uh, as I was reading an essay about it, uh, he starts off by throwing his quill in a in a in a, a mug. Yeah. That says. Uh, from Stratford upon Avon, right? And it, it's a tourist mug. It's yeah. a mug anybody can buy. Yeah. It's it's literally commenting on like, uh, oh yeah, yeah. This the, is this is the Shakespeare that the exists industry. for this industry yes. exactly. Yeah. And it and it did very 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 well in that yeah. in that respect, right? So the, these things do uh, feed and and intermingle oh, between one hugely. another. Um, and it's it's it is interesting that that one is the most popular of all of the movies because. It is not Shakespearean English. It is. It is. Well, it's it is, not even Shakespearean history. Yeah, exactly. Really. It's nothing. It's literally it's just has Shakespeare in yeah. the title. Yeah. Um, and yet it is. Uh, it's very, very, very Shakespearean in a way because <laughs> it is. It was populist, yeah. and it was. It was there. Yeah, to yeah. Tell, It was there to tell a, a Shakespearean story that everybody could get well, behind. Well, the I, way all the other '90s adaptations, like Ten Things and everything, did the same thing. And I, I watched a really interesting. Maybe I'll I'll try and find it and link it in our, our episode description. But um, another uh, critic video about that film mm-hmm. um, on YouTube, where they said it's it's like it's like the Shakespeare that. It's not true at all, mm-hmm. but it's the Shakespeare that we want. want. Yes. And in Wish the absence it is yeah. absolutely and yeah. in the absence of hard evidence for anything like when you look at the 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 obvious correlation I guess is um all is true. Mm-hmm. Which came out last year? I think um with Kenneth Branagh playing an aging Shakespeare and yes. Judy Dench playing his wife and um that is that, that film like more of a biopic. It's, it's definitely more of a biopic. There's still some fanciful imaginings about conversations that yeah, have happened don't have. because you don't have that. Yeah. But it's it's very different from Shakespeare in Love in the sense that it's um, it's a realist modern telling of the it's old more, life. Yeah, it's more realistic, yeah. I guess. And then yeah. you have films like Anonymous that fit in between. So yeah, quite fanciful and imagined. <laughs> But also have this this grounded ring of real truth. feel, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. So I mean, it it that that stuff all just kind of uh, ties together in in mm-hmm. again this sense of like Shakespeare is this high culture that's popular enough for people to continue buying it. Yeah. I think Shakespeare, I think the market will show you that Shakespeare is uh, the most accessible when you make him the most accessible, right. like or the most popular, I guess, when you yeah. make him the most accessible. When yeah. you make a Shakespeare in Love, when you make a Much Ado About Nothing, which yeah. was a very popular movie yeah. as or well. Or Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet. Like you bring it to the modern, you literally bring it into the modern day, cut down a lot of the language and make it so colorful and vibrant and something that is accessible to or whatever is popular people. at the time yeah, yeah. you know you you, you that match a very it to the culture that, yes. that is going to see your film in yeah. theaters you're going to find it to be very profitable yeah exactly um which is maybe the same thing as popular but yeah. not the same thing as popular <laughs> we, good question very good very questions. tough questions to be or not to be that is the question. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about the educational background for all this and the education industry as well, because um, this is this is a big one. Uh, in particular, I want to talk about uh, just the, that the fact that uh, education has become hugely uh, like we take it for granted in this day and age yeah. that everybody gets a primary education and a secondary in most parts of the world. That was not the case <laughs> before From the war. The vast vast majority of human history. Yes, exactly. So I mean, like the idea that. Uh, more people than ever are are 
not only being taught English in a lot of parts of the world, um, but they're they're taught Shakespeare. Yeah, it contributes a lot to this. Oh, I mean, yeah. you you will find people from all over the world who are like, yeah, I love Shakespeare, even if it's in translated form in their original language. They yeah. like the story. Yeah. Um, and and that's just something that really helps feed into the thing. And the fact, like you mentioned, the the curricula, national curriculum for uh, Britain came out. It's part of our curriculum here. Yep. Again, we were exposed to it. I think most places in Canada have it. I United think most States places in the well. states as yeah. well. It just it's it is a piece of high culture that is again thrust upon uh, <laughs> the many students in, in the world. But that helps them find an audience because the people who are exposed to it through that enjoy it they can participate in buying the souvenirs and uh, going and attending local plays or whatever. Yeah, and right? I mean, even when, you know, uh, speaking as a teacher, when I when I teach Shakespeare, um, you ask the question, how many of you have been to England? How many of you? And, and there's inevitably, even in a grade nine classroom, there's inevitably a few students whose hands go up and say, I, I went to see a play at the Globe or, yeah. or whatever, even if they've never quite yet encountered Shakespeare in an me, educational yeah. or pedagogical setting. There's an expectation that they will, so their parents take them, and and it's it's become kind of its own cultural tour or grand tour kind of thing, yeah. but but preemptively almost yeah. right. So they they say I went when I was in grade four, yeah. and they have no idea who Shakespeare is. They just know it's like you know when we were kids and you'd hear the rumors from high school students that you had to memorize the periodic table. So you would like have this idea in your head that I'm going to have to memorize the periodic table, but you, then you get there and it's not really that bad. Um, it's it's kind of like that. There's like an anticipation of I'm going to need to learn Shakespeare, yeah. so my parents are dragging me to England and we're yeah. going to. You know, after we visit grandma, we're going to go to the globe <laughs> exactly. or whatever, yeah. which is it, it, it is an interesting thing that it's become so much a part of our and maybe maybe that's because it's Canada. I don't know. As a Commonwealth country, we're, we have much stronger ties to England and to I mean, the culture. I, but I, I wonder how much of it is English language, because like, yeah, or like that, India yeah. definitely obviously has yeah. a big, you know, has the, the, the Commonwealth ish ties or the colonial sure. ties, at least. Uh, and it it also has parts of it are very uh you continue to use english all the time and stuff but it's it's not a natural it's not the dominant language and it's no. not uh something that would probably be enforced at all times because why, why would you want the colonial tongue and that's you know, on the down? british empire exactly right <laughs> like there's all so there, there's just a lot yeah. of dynamics in the whole educational sector that we can't really get into maybe we'll maybe we'll get into that when we do teaching shakespeare yeah i think i think it's on. an important question to talk about but for I must tell you friendly in your ear. Sell when you can. You are not for all markets. So uh, the next, and we, sorry, apologies for the length of this episode. But we, <laughs> we are, as you can tell, very excited to talk about this topic. Um, but we have a couple more questions before we get to the ancient bickering today. Yes. Um, and one of the big ones is like, what what what's kind of the balance for you, Lindsay? Of of how would you like to see Shakespeare commercialized? Are you fine with with it as is, where you know you can literally find his his sayings and his face on you know every piece of crappy, kitschy tourist uh, trap uh, stuff, or yeah. do do you think he should be kind of revered and, and held above that? Do you, I are, don't know. I I mean, a lot of this comes down to like my own feelings about capitalism generally you know where i just i wish that this stuff wasn't for sale yeah but i don't think it shouldn't be there yeah does that make sense like is that is that is that betraying (laughs) too much of my marxist leaning yeah perhaps because i i do think it's important that you know because i like shakespeare 
I want Shakespeare pencils and I want a Shakespeare bobblehead. And, I, yeah. you know, I don't mind that that stuff. I, I want a Shakespeare insults day by day calendars that's sitting we, right next to us on yes, the desk here. Um, but but do I think that it's it's I do think it's crass when it's being you know, sold for 15 pounds yeah. in a, in a store that after, you know, they charged, you know, it cost four cents to make yeah. in Bangladesh for the yeah, like, slave labor like, there. I think you know, that's, like, that's what I find offensive about it, but I so don't, it's global capitalism you have an issue with. Basically. Not so much, yeah. yeah. Okay. But I don't think it's wrong to want to participate in like the tourism industry around Shakespeare yeah. or the, the souvenir industry or the cultural social, economic industry that's been built up around Shakespeare. Yeah. Well, I mean, like we said, we we are participating in it. We in absolutely some way, are. Right? I so mean, I, we're more self-aware of it, I think, than, than well, some people. Well, we don't ask for money. I mean, I think that is, that is part oh, of Oh, you're talking part. about with our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, I thought because we participate and we go yeah. to those places. No, I'm saying as creators, as yeah, people yeah, yeah. Who, are, who are, you know, Yeah, I, I guess that's true, yeah, right? We're trading on Shakespeare's house. name, hoping yeah. that people will will Coming appreciate in. the podcast yeah. and you know if you're a regular listener thank you yeah appreciate um, it but yeah it's it it is it is weird maybe maybe that's that's my answer then that that yeah. you know we we provide this for free because that's our political leanings yeah well I, plus nobody would probably pay for it well yeah that too <laughs> it would be embarrassing How, what do you think about commercializing Shakespeare yeah I, I, I tend to agree I think there's yeah it's so hard to separate any aspect of any industry mm-hmm. from you know the bad parts of capitalism that well that yeah it's it's just, it's just yeah it's hard to really draw draw that line but yeah i agree i think in some ways it's it's really great that it's expanded in such a way that people can like you and i like if we were born 100 years earlier yeah we would not have been able to visit uh england unless and we were born the yeah in unless, the country but even then would we have had the financial resources to well, do yeah. so probably not yeah. like even maybe if we were middle class but there weren't that many middle class people back then right so like there's just there are there are benefits to living in the terrible capitalist <laughs> society in which we do or the year 2020 let's yeah. just that, be let's honest. put it that way what's what's unique about shakespeare's um commercialization like what makes it such a different thing i think it is i think the nationalism part yeah. does definitely play a big role i think the the uk government for since thatcher and before then even was yeah. quite quite uh, purposeful in in building him up as a national icon and it's been incredibly successful like yeah i did some of the research i did was about uh there's a, a uk great campaign that came out right. i think around 2012 or maybe a little bit before the olympics that was really designed as like let's build up the uk as a place to invest do tourism go for tourism and uh go for education which is a huge export for them and uh, there were a few other like basically build them up as an economic power right and one of the cultural things that they really leaned into was shakespeare because he's recognizable people like him and he there's already an industry there ready to take people's money if they do come and visit right so like this has been an ongoing platform for various uk governments over the years and it's been very successful the bbc has obviously helped out a lot of that with all their productions and and broadcasting all over the world um and then even uh, outright for the olympics they also did a huge thing called the i think it was like the world of shakespeare um where 
you know, it was like every Olympics you do a cultural show. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, Japan, when they were going to have the Olympics, they were going to have anime guys, I guess. And like, did we have you know, hockey when it was in Canada? Yeah. Well, we did. Remember the opening ceremony where they had like across the country and they had yeah, the prairies yeah, for Joni yeah. Mitchell and then, yeah, yeah all these things, right? It. So like, you Music. show off your culture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You show off your culture for the Olympics. And uh, the, this whole world of Shakespeare thing was going to be a year long yes. thing. Um, and it's interesting. That one's interesting because uh, artists opposed it because it was yeah. it was sponsored by uh, British Petroleum, right. who is now just BP after uh, you know Deepwater Horizon, Deepwater being a big problem. But yeah, because this was right after Deepwater. Deepwater was 2011, 2010, 2010, 2011, 11 or twelve. Or something. I was student it was teaching. It was two thousand ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the Deepwater had happened, and now they wanted to save face by buying. Yeah. You know, sponsoring this world of Shakespeare thing. And so it, it draws in a lot of really interesting questions. There was a whole essay devoted to this and I can, we'll, we'll link to it. Yeah. Um, we got it from a, a book, so we'll link to the book. Uh, but it's, it's uh, really interesting questions about like, who's, when you sponsor an event, are you, you're, you're trying to say like, oh, well, we like Shakespeare. So you should like us yeah. if you like Shakespeare. It's, it's a very crass, obvious well, and, thing. And the PR behind it is yeah. so interesting because you're, you're, you as a horrible oil company that has just been directly responsible for this incredible disaster you have the audacity to trade on shakespeare's name to try and make yourself look better so yeah when you talked about the artists who sabotaged a lot of these performances by taking they would like do like pop-up shows at the start of these events and and uh, insinuate like they would use shakespearean language to criticize the oil industry which i think is just brilliant um like yeah, BP deserved that, right? Yeah, and totally. and I think that that is I would call that a PR fail. But I think a lot of companies yeah. still to this day would do something like this. Well, and it's interesting because they they ran some surveys afterwards right. and there was an increase in the public perception of BP after this. Like they thought it was better? Yeah, they were like, "Oh no, yeah, BP's doing They're that. all right cuz they they like no, no, Shakespeare." No, 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 no. It, oh. but it, it's not framed that way. It was like, "Do you think BP is doing its role to help the environment and, and reduce emissions right. and stuff like that?" And uh, before this whole thing at the start of the year it was like 32% and afterwards it was like 39%. So, so I mean, is it because because they were well, it, it's associated it's, it's with something out, po- positive. I mean, yes, partly, okay. right? It's like that's that's the thing is that this is why the PR companies will tell huge companies to do this is because like you can improve your image by splashing money on these these festivals. And, and this stuff. is why I appreciate millennials and Gen Z so much <laughs> because we don't fall for that shit the way that well, previous generations do, yeah. who think that. Ad oh, companies yeah. are are there, to tell there the for benefit yeah. for our benefit, yeah. you know, and yeah. and and maybe it's because I watched Mad Men and I heard Don Draper give that speech, so I see it from the inside. It is. Yes, yes, but I, I just feel like there's so much less. Um, we won't allow the wool to be pulled over our eyes to the same degree that that previous generations have done. Yes. We need to become more savvy, and I think that yeah. I'm worried a little bit about the way that companies going forward are going to um how they're going to reach us in terms of of commercializing the products that they're trying to sell yeah you know but i have one more question for you before sure. we get to ancient bickerings yes is there something to be said for authentic shakespeare locations so i read yeah. a, i read a really interesting essay that talked about the lesco cave paintings and how um those paintings the caves that they're located in are close to the public but because of deterioration of the caves themselves and the artwork that's in them so they 
put like a replica of the yeah. caves outside. So when you go to Lascaux, you can still see the, the caves. Yeah. You, I think you can touch the wall that they oh, like the, the, of the, the replica. The replica, right? Yes, yes. So you're able to get a lot closer. It's a it's a perfect replica apparently, but they're not the caves. Yeah, and that's. The, the See, obvious yeah. parallel for me is with the globe, yeah, with the Shakespeare, Shakespeare's globe. That but, I think there are a lot of people who go to the globe and and don't know that it's not the original globe, uh, even though no, 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 I I, I do so. think there absolutely are because maybe in America, <laughs> I I do think there are because if you have someone mm. like Sam Wanamaker thinking that the globe was still going to be yeah okay yeah that's that's in, a fair point yeah. in 1947 yeah you know 300 years after it burned down yeah. <laughs> you know like that's something that that so I, I, so my I guess. my point is you we still went to the globe and there was still an interesting feeling but but it wasn't. It wasn't the same as as us when we went to Liverpool and we got to go into the Casbah Club in yes. the basement of Mona Best's house yes. in in Liverpool, and yes. you got to see the Beatles' artwork on the walls, like yeah. the painting that they did on the ceilings and stuff like that. Yeah. Like that was like a real pilgrimage. Yes, that, that was that like was, that was like touching the relics of Christ touch. or something yes. for like the the, the medieval Beatles. pilgrims. Yeah, for, for Beatles people. For Beatles people. So so. <laughs> Is there something to be said for authentic Shakespeare? Do you need I, that? Do you need? I, why did it feel different to go to Holy Trinity Church than it did to go to the Globe? Well, I mean, this gets back to, like, we've talked about this in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not on this podcast, but you and I in the past week have talked about this. You have a boat, okay? And yeah. you take part <laughs> planks off the boat because they're rusted or, you know, rust wood, I guess. But they're, they're falling apart and you replace it with another plank. At what point do you have the same boat, Right. And so Trinity Anglican Church, I'm sure, has been renovated many times yes. since 1616. Uh, and so uh, has so is any all of the, the birthplaces. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All these places are not. The floorboards are not the floorboards that Shakespeare yes, they've, walked they've, on. They've shown good, well-aged floorboards they've put in there, but they are not the same ones. So yeah. you are not walking on the same pieces of wood as Shakespeare would have. But so are you still there? Like these are these are yeah. good questions. Um, I think it's. I think the the difference with the globe, and this is maybe just for me, but um, I think you're going there for an authentic experience, not to touch the authentic yeah, place. Yeah. I think you're going there to stand in a similar way to the people who stand stood and right. watched the plays 400 years earlier. Right. I think you can get that experience uh, in this day and age. So it's it's you're. It's a facsimile of what you might have experienced. And I think that's yeah. definitely what the globe goes for because they did build it to the specifications of the time yes. using material that was available at the time. I think the yeah. only modern conveniences are like electricity and the um, the sprinkler yeah. system to prevent another yeah. Henry VIII fire, fire from yeah. burning it down. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there is a, a sense that... that the experience is what it is it's not i guess i guess why do we want to go to authentic places anyway like why is it important maybe and with shakespeare because there's so few authentic places that are left i mean the great fire of london kind of saw to that in 1666 so there's very few authentic places left but this isn't just about shakespeare it's about going to jane austen's house or it's about seeing charles dickens london or about Mm -hmm. going on the jack the ripper tour and seeing places that are associated with the the ripper murders and um and and there, there are hundreds of examples of this throughout history. The Lesko cave paintings are just, you know, the oldest yeah. one that I found. But 
you know, it comes back to that idea of manufacturing culture too, right? Mm -hmm. Because Disneyland is a place of pilgrimage for people too. And there's nothing authentic about Disneyland. But, well, but there is something authentic about it. The whole thing is authentic. Because, because you it is, know what you're getting. You're, yeah, you're but getting, it's not like Mickey Mouse touched that. Like, that, it's a different kind of... But it of, is. <laughs> but that's, that's the whole appeal of Disneyland, is that you can go and touch Mickey Mouse. You can give Mickey Mouse a hug. And sure, but there was no one physical. Mickey Mouse that... You know what I mean? Like, so it's yeah, a different kind well, of idea, but it's still, <laughs> it still represents the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. And I, I, I think the, the whole idea of... I, I actually love the Marvel and Disney comparisons to this because... Um, it, we've documented everything of the Disney era, you know, like yeah. we know everything there is about, like you can watch the documentary of Walt Disney saying, yes. here's Disneyland, here's the layout and here's where you can meet yeah. Mickey. And it's yeah. like, it was touristic and capitalistic from the start. It was, it was designed start. to be that way. Exactly. That yes. was where he was going to make his money yeah. when the film stopped making money, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and it's just incredible to, to kind of see that planned, you know, would Shakespeare, here's a question do you think Shakespeare would be upset that people are still coming to his house 400 years later would he be flattered would he be like I want 10% of the profits I, like he would absolutely want 10% <laughs> of the profits or more more yeah um, but I don't I don't I don't know like it's it's such a different idea and that's that's on popular culture that's on yeah. 20th century commodification of culture that that you have entire industries like the Disney industry yeah that is designed specifically for this experience and everything else is shoehorned to fit yeah the globe is is shakespeare disneyland yeah stratford on avon is part of shakespeare disneyland right it's it's not authentic yeah it's it is non-profit i mean i will grant them that like no i said the wrong thing too because it is authentic but it's not (laughs) this This is is, such a sticky question it's such a it's such an interesting one. We're not going to get to the answers, no. but it's it's really fun to think about, and that's I guess the whole point of why we're why we're doing this. If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. What's our ancient bickerings today? Uh, instead of a question, I mean, I I, I did question, at one, I guess, at one but... point I asked no at one point I was going to ask the question like, do you think Shakespeare should be popular? And I'm like, obviously we agree on that because we're doing this podcast together. So I, it was a dumb question. So instead, you kind of had a great thing. Can you find what is? There are three types of souvenirs well, that, that we, we looked that we looked, that we looked at, into. Yeah. It was like, can you find the tackiest, the most expensive, and the coolest souvenir yeah. to fit in with the whole ethos of selling Shakespeare? Yeah. So, uh, Lindsay, why don't we start with the tackiest? Sure. What it, what was the one that you found that, that you liked? Well, I had I had two tacky souvenirs that I found online. Um, one of them was from Amazon, and the other one was from the literary gift company. These are those companies yeah. that that spring up that they put like words on T-shirts and scarves and mittens and yeah. stuff. But I found like a Shakespeare rubber ducky, uh-huh. which was just tacky. But I want one. Like <laughs> all of these are things that I want. Let's just <laughs> yeah, preface let's that. I'm that, I'm yeah. not gonna yeah, yeah sugarcoat that. So a rubber ducky, and then there was another one that was the. Um, a bard of soap, the oh, Shakespeare bard of soap. That's but good. <laughs> but the one that I found that um, that I think I'll I'll link to was um, to be or not to be. Or not. No, well, no, maybe I'm getting it confused with the eraser that said out damn spot on it. But <laughs> that's good. But like yeah, like Macbeth's hand, like soap that uh, you know that yes. maybe it just stains your hand or something yeah. like that. If it turned that's, red, that's that a little tacky. It's a little like tacky. It. I'm I not like gonna it. say, but I but I appreciate it. See, my I went for in terms of tackiest in terms of like these 
things have nothing to do with Shakespeare. That was kind right. of how my brain was going. So yeah. I found one that's a punching puppet. Like you what put, you it, it's it's a puppet you have, and then when you squeeze your hand together, <laughs> he has arms that come out with boxing and gloves and punches, and it's just Shakespeare. It has nothing. Why Shakespeare was not a pugilist. I don't think anybody even boxed <laughs> once in a Shakespearean play. Uh, I'm sure I'm wrong about that actually, but you know, it has nothing to do with Shakespeare. It's literally just like, well, we can put anybody's head on it. Let's do a Shakespeare one. You know, I'm sure it sells millions. Exactly, and the other one that was very similar uh was shakespeare plays as microbes you know you can get those like kind of weird like uh virus and bacteria shaped plushies yep uh these ones they they're they didn't even really try they called them shakespeare plays but it's like uh the pox a pox upon you and all these things and they're so they're literally just the ones they use for every other disease and they just did they have have your cinea yes they did but it didn't look like it just looks like a regular bacteria strain. See, I'd like to do I'd like to do fancy. that with like, you know, okay, coronavirus, but let's match it up with the Shakespeare play that it represents. Like like Titus Andronicus. You know, it's just a disaster. A disaster. Right? Yeah. Yeah. A bloodbath. A yeah, bloodbath. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, they were all bloodbaths. That's that's that stuff. <laughs> yes, yeah, I agree. Um what about what about for your most expensive? What did you find? Well, I knew that that a copy of the first folio obviously would be the most expensive but there aren't any that are currently currently for sale but i did find um on a a rare book dealer that i have purchased books from in the past um it's where i got my copies of john lennon's books was from this this book dealer um (laughs) more Beatles stuff for you yeah uh i found a copy of the second folio um which which was how much i think it was like 180,000 pounds or something or 180,000 dollars yeah but $35 $35 shipping to Canada. So, yeah, well, so you know, it's worthwhile. Very affordable. Very, yeah. very affordable. But, but yeah, this was a, a copy of the second folio, which I, I don't remember, 1640s or something, 1630s. Um, that would be a yeah. that would be a wild souvenir to have. Very cool. Can you imagine just buying it and putting it on your bookshelf? Like, who who, who would do that? Someone with 180,000 pounds. Just and sitting around. You're just sitting around. So okay, that, what, that's was, fine. what was the most expensive souvenir that you um, found? I also was looking for books, and uh, I, the, I did okay. not find a rare bookstore one. I was just on like eBay and okay. Amazon and stuff like that. So the, the most expensive I found was a six-volume Tonson uh, first edition okay. uh, from 1709 okay. for 44000 Canadian. It's a lot it, of It's money. still being bid on, so who knows where it'll actually go. But it's it's a looks like five books, uh, poems are in one, and then the plays are in uh, the other five cool and yeah for, so 44 44 grand canadian what's the shipping on that one uh, that's 35 all I as well 35 yeah, wow yeah, yeah. that's that's i impressive. think that's standard canada post rate i think that's why okay yeah, yeah maybe makes sense pure later yeah. yeah yeah okay what was the coolest souvenir that you found uh the one i like the most is it's because of the coronavirus it's very shakespearean i think he'd uh, lo- i think he'd love a good plague uh, this <laughs> Shakespeare loved a good plague. Uh, you know, he was, oh he, was he was adept at managing them. He was born in a plague, Lindsay. It's in it's his blood. True, true. Uh, I, there's been a bunch of cheap masks that have Shakespeare on them, and I want all of them now. That, those actually? are my new favorite uh, Shakespeare. Okay. Or my new favorite masks are the Shakespeare ones. So, all right. Yeah. Uh, I found a, a bunch of the the ostensibly they were the mulberry tree souvenirs. And I think uh, that would be that, a cool one to have. If, yeah, if, it if, actually if you could actually like match it up, authenticate that'd be great. But that's another, yeah. Does it need to be authenticated or does it just need to have the aura of truth yeah, to it? Yeah, that's right? true. Well, it depends like, on how much you pay. That's that's exactly <laughs> it. So, uh, yeah, that that was, uh, we'll link to all of these in our, in our um, 
episode description. We'd love to hear um, what you've discovered in your... Yeah, what's the best one you have? Yeah, like if or somebody's if you bought have something one. that's like, oh yeah, I have a okay, third edition or something. Here's, a, here's like, a, a cool okay. question for you. Like, What's the coolest Shakespeare souvenir that we own, that we've that we've purchased? See, I really like our folio editions of yeah. Henry V and it's on that stream. Yeah. And, uh, oh, and, and Romeo and Juliet, Juliet too. I it's bought right Romeo and Juliet to show to my class when I taught. Because, yeah, um, yeah I, I was going to say the same thing. Like, Those are pretty cool. They're very high quality facsimiles that yeah. we purchased through the globe actually so yeah yeah we, we bought two of them when we were there and then i think you ordered the other one I did. online yeah. yeah so yeah yeah, yeah. it's very it's cool parting is such sweet sorrow that i shall say good night till it be morrow so what's up next aiden uh next up we have henry v okay so uh yeah the, keeping that nationalistic yeah, trend going. going that's right uh it should be a it should be a fun time uh it's a it's a good play um, and I think we are going to watch the Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, it's, it's a yeah. I think that makes sense. And then following that, we've got producing Shakespeare, which will be kind yeah. of the the sister cousin to the um, acting in Shakespeare yes. uh, episode that we did um, back at the start of the summer. Yeah. So we're hoping to have a, a spirited discussion with. The people who put on Shakespearean yeah. productions. Yeah. How do you... How do you approach that? I approach literally... I, the, yeah. My first question was to be, okay, you say, we're going to do uh, Henry V. We're going to do Henry V. What do you do next? Like, yeah. <laughs> literally, like, like, like where, what how do you approach that? decisions go into making yeah. a play? Yeah. And it's not, not the individual decisions of the actors on stage, which we've already talked about, but like, how do you frame this? How yeah. do you... How, how do you, you how do you decide, okay, well, we're going to cut this scene or we're going to cut this character the or... setting yeah, or, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. How, who do, how do we... How does that work with the director versus yeah. the producer? Like, we want to ask all these questions. And how beholden you know? are you to yeah. keeping Shakespeare authentic in order to you know stick yeah. with the theme of this episode exactly um following that we've got julius caesar yeah on, our, on the docket we're, we're so. really heading into the to the goodies we so. keep saying that every episode well, I but, thought uh, about but they've been it's great, true they've been great plays the last couple of ones we've really enjoyed them so yeah. uh, that's gonna continue you can find all our episodes on itunes spotify podbean youtube or wherever you get your podcast fix If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.